Father God, as we gather around your word here or in another room, whatever level of communication with us, we pray, Lord God, that you might speak to us and that we might hear what it is you would say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life I was reading through the news on the BBC website this week and I stumbled upon a headline for the upcoming US midterm elections. And it says this America's elections could turn really nasty. And I have to admit, my first thought was really? Turn nasty? I mean, there's been such friendly affairs so far, right? Eh? How bad do they think it's going to get? But actually, what really caught my attention was there's a flag in the background, and I saw a big Jesus at the top, so I zoomed in on it, and it said this Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. And you know, I'm having something quite sick. Not merely that. Trump's name was on that banner, but it's not, it's not so much I, I genuinely do struggle to believe why so many of the evangelical Christian community has so readily bought into Trump with almost uncritical. But it just smacked of me as like a first century Corinthian, Ephesian, or Colossian follower of Jesus saying, Jesus is my saviour, but Caesar is Lord. That said, it would be fair to say that September was a fairly momentous month for our nation. I'm reliably informed that never before in our history have we acquired a new Prime Minister and a new monarch in the same week. And although something I only discovered this week as I went actually to check out that fact is I thought I'm bound to say that and then somebody's going to tell me that it's happened several times before. But did you know that up until the mid-19th century, the death of a monarch would have led to the dissolution of parliament and a general election? I have no further comment than that, except that I find it interesting. <laughs> but the last public acts of our late Queen on Tuesday the 6th of September were to accept Boris Johnson's resignation as Prime Minister and to invite Liz Truss to form a new government. And little did any of us know that not much more than 50 hours later, on the Thursday, the Queen would pass away 
bringing King Charles to the, to the throne. However, these events were quite different. Sad though the news was of the Queen's passing, there's, there's long been an, an inevitability to Charles' accession to the throne. No one may have known when, but we knew one day it was probably going to come. And Charles admitted on the first meeting with the new PM, it was a moment that he had had been dreading for years. And yet it was a moment to which quite literally his entire life had been moving. He was quite literally born to the role. Whereas it was only in relatively recent weeks that Liz Trust becoming Prime Minister seemed inevitable. As they went through the various rounds of MPs voting, it was only right at the very end that she made her way to the top two who would ultimately contest the election amongst Conservative Party members. So they were quite different, but they were both significant political moments in the history of our nation, just as the midterms will be in America. But today, as we continue our wander through the Apostles' Creed, we come to what one writer has described as the supreme political event in world history. Over the last few weeks, we have followed Jesus from his birth through his suffering under Pontius Pilate, being crucified, dying, being buried, descending to the dead. Last week, we looked at the resurrection. But he wasn't talking about any of those. It was what happened next. And today, we look at the next part of the story and the next line of the Creed. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So today we're talking about ascension and what it means for us. But you know, even if R.C. Sproul, the theologian who made the comment about the supreme political event, even if he thinks it's the supreme political event in our world history, it's one that's often overlooked even in churches. Last week I was congratulated by somebody for handling a subject not many preachers talk about when I talked about resurrection. I must admit I was quite surprised because I think I talked about it quite a lot. But ascension, that would be much rarer. In free church traditions, we don't tend to follow church calendars very closely. When I grew up in Belfast, I, I don't even remember us doing Christmas and Easter. And even then, Good Friday wasn't a big thing. Certainly not in the Protestant church. And in more recent times, okay, maybe Pentecost has gained a bit more prominence, but ascension? No, not really. That's so. And maybe there are good reasons for that. It's marked 40 days after Easter, and that means it happens on a Thursday. And anything spiritually, spiritually significant happen on a Thursday. <laughs> and also, I'm not sure what we are to make of it. Are we really supposed to imagine Jesus taking off like a rocket? Can we serious, take seriously those paintings which have Jesus' feet sticking out of the bottom of a cloud? And where does he go? I mean, we have been. Well, we don't have the same three-tier view of the cosmos with the earth in the middle, with heaven above and hell below. We've been beyond the clouds. It's space out there. The king of Khrushchev was famously said, when Yuri began, went to space, he claimed the fact we have sent, sent the man into orbit and we haven't found God. <laughs> and the fact that they didn't encounter God was proof to him that atheism was true. And it would probably be fair to say 
that within our evangelical traditions we have kind of focused on the cross and the resurrection as the climax of Jesus' ministry. And ascension's kind of faded into the background. And yet it appears to have been incredibly important to the first Christians. Although there is very little direct mention of it, it comes up again and again throughout the New Testament. Buckle up, there's going to be a lot of text here. In John, Jesus meets Nicodemus and he says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. A few chapters later, Jesus challenges the crowd about their unbelief, saying, Do my words offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? At his trial, Jesus is asked to speak plainly and tell them whether or not he's the Messiah. And he says, I tell, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you, you wouldn't answer. But from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the mighty God. When the risen Jesus meets Mary Magdalene in the garden, he says, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go instead to my brothers and say, I am ascended to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And then we move on a bit later, and it's just before Pentecost, and the disciples are trying to choose a, place, a replacement for Judas. And they say, it has to be one of us who has been with us from the very beginning, from the baptism of John, right up until the day he was taken up from us. Or on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to him. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see of him. Peter was on there, and we told by the time he to stop talking about Jesus. He said, God has exalted him to his own right hand as Prince and Saviour, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Later, Stephen faces trial, and before he's killed, he's said to have looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Paul speaks of Jesus being raised to life at the right hand of God in the same words. He speaks of God showing his power when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated Jesus at his right hand. He encourages the Colossians to set their minds on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Peter also speaks of the ascension and how Jesus has come into heaven and is at God's right hands with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Hebrews speaks a lot about the ascension. He says, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Jesus is described as a great high priest who is exalted above the heavens and has ascended into heaven. He is, we are told to fix our eyes on him, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The next one won't come. But the lack of attention given to the subject today, and I hold my hands up and say, I'm as guilty as the next one, and can seem like the ascension is relatively important to us, certainly compared to the cross and empty time. 
emphasized in the section of the, in the section of the creed which focuses on the life of Jesus as being how important that these were physical things which happened in real history. That Jesus was truly human, he truly died, he was truly buried, he was truly raised, and the same was true of the ascension. In Jesus, God descends from heaven, he takes on humanity, and he lives among us. And then, having completed all that he came to do, he ascends. And as he does so, he takes humanity back with him into the presence of God. So what does that mean for us here and now? I want to leave you with just a few thoughts. The first is this, that Jesus shares God's authority. The seat at the right hand of the king was the seat of power and authority. Even today, we talk about someone being the right-hand woman or the right-hand man of the person who has leadership or power responsibility. You know, our world is uncertain. It's unpredictable. And we can feel at the mercy of all sorts of things which are out of our control. And we can wonder you know, if those who have any sense of authority, of any authority, have any understanding of our experience. There are some times they say so, and they just feel like, are you in another world? Our ascension tells us we are not alone in the universe, nor are we at the mercy of impersonal, uncanny forces, because Jesus has taken his humanity into the heavens, and Jesus has the Father's He shares God's authority. He is king of all, ruler over all. He's upholding all things. He's the one at work all things, whether we see him or not, whether we feel him or not, and he is working them for good. And ascension tells us that our our destiny is not in the hands of Vladimir Putin or Liz Truss or Keir Starmer or Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any other pretender. It's in the hands of one who has given himself for us, come amongst us, has taken on humanity, has dwelt amongst us. He suffered, died, been buried. He's entered into death itself and emerged from the tomb, giving even death a new destiny. And he assures us that nothing in life or death, absolutely nothing, will separate us from his life. But not only does he have the Father's influence, he's on our side. He is with you. He is for you. Sometimes we need to be careful about the way we talk about Jesus and his relationship with God. Sometimes the way we talk about God, we can come up with this sense of that there is a big bad Old Testament smiting God. And the New Testament, peace, love, and understanding. And we can have this idea that God was really, really angry and he needed to punish someone. But Jesus takes it among his hands. And the message we can unconsciously send back is that somehow or other, Jesus is saving us from God. And when we talk about Jesus at the right hand of God interceding for us, it can be quite similar. It can be like 
God's like a dark one that you know they're really bad, they're really or they're awful. Jesus, come on. No, 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 God, please, please, help them. There is no such division in the heart of God. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. And God always will be like Jesus. The whole initiative in Jesus coming into the world to rescue us is from the heart of God. And having come to rescue us, Jesus has now returned, taking humanity with him to intercede for us. He is on our side. He is with us. He is for us. And from there, he is active on, the mo uh, on our behalf. For the most part, when we read of Jesus at the right hand, What's he doing? Think of that big list of meetings like Jesus was what at the right hand of God? You're doing it now. Exactly, well done. Well done. He's seated at the right hand of God. And the sense is that Jesus has done all that is necessary on our behalf, that his life, breath, and rest, death, and resurrection, they have made him our saviour. Nothing more needs to be done. And being seated implies rest. There's work on our stand, and it kind of implies settled possession, that there's no one coming along to take his place for him. You know, he's, got, he's, got, you know, he's got his feet under the table. But it could create the sense of being disconnected from us. He is detached from us and insulated at the right hand. And nothing there is, but there is one passage which was in that list which describes it differently. And we touched on it this morning. When Stephen is at his trial just before he was killed, he looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and saw Jesus standing. And he said, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing. In the moment of crisis, it's like Jesus has risen to come to the assistance of the one who calls on. And even at the moment of death, which this was going to be for, for Stephen, he rises to welcome him. He told his disciples he had gone to prepare the way for him. And now he comes to his to our Whilst he was on earth, Jesus was always restricted by time and space. Now that has been broken. At the right hand of God, he can be wherever he needs to be. It's because of the ascension that we can truly say, as we considered a few weeks back, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the answer is nowhere. For nowhere. Quite a lot more I can say in this, but I'm going to actually leave it a couple of weeks. But there's one final thing that we take away, and nothing else I've said from this morning is this. Because of Jesus, we can approach God with confidence. The 
history of humanity and our relationship with God has forever been one filled with fear. As Christians, we quite often talk about you know, we're in this really, really bad situation, and then God showed up. Well, in history, when God showed up, that was never a good thing. And even in our Bibles, that's the case. Look at basically any encounter with the divine. And what is the first word spoken? Don't be afraid. Thank you. 